0: Welcome, everybody, to the 14th episode of Quarantine Market Podcast, where some academics get together and speak about particular keywords in the self-isolating comfort of our pajamas. And the keyword for today is solidarity. And we're happy to welcome Joe Grady to discuss this topic with us today. So, Alan, would you like to give Joe a proper introduction? I certainly
1: would. Jo works at Sheffield University, where she uh, specializes in employment relations. However, she's currently on career break because she is now the General Secretary of the University and College Union, which is one of the major trade unions in the UK and the primary trade union representing academic workers. And we might as well note that the union is in dispute with British universities. And just before the outbreak of coronavirus, Joe was occupying very much the leadership position in what was the biggest ever industrial action um, in the history of British universities. So, welcome to the podcast, Joe.
2: Hello, thanks for having me.
1: Um, today, Joe, the key words that we've identified is solidarity. So, in order to think as, of solidarity as a concept, where's a good place to begin?
2: Um, I think. The sort of linchpin of solidarity and what makes it so important is that it gives us a word to actually describe how important it is to be able to recognise that offering support, and I think that can you know mean many many different things. And sometimes when you're offering support, you don't even always know that you're that that's what you're doing. But the very act of offering support and friendship. Um, And even the ability to kind of collectively think and demonstrate um, how people can organize together for power is an an essential component of, of working class struggle, really. And I think there's been so many examples of international solidarity where I think at the moment of people doing those acts of solidarity, they don't necessarily know that it's having an effect and it can sometimes only be afterwards you you learn the valuable lessons that you are. Um, But for anyone who's ever stood up against a bullying manager or taken strike action as part of a union or gone on a demo, whether that's an anti-war demo or a tuition fees for university students demo, um, there's something about the sort of feeling, the oxytocin, if you like, of being in that crowd, um, and that's solidarity, knowing that you've all come together. And sometimes you're there because you're not affected, but other people are. But you're there fighting against something and in support of another thing. Um, and that that's essentially what solidarity is. And as I say, it can be small acts of solidarity between people in one country. Or it can be, you know, a letter writing campaign and a, and a sort of national and international petition that leads to somebody who's been imprisoned in a dictatorial regime being released because that dictatorial regime's come under international pressure. So solidarity is kind of all of those things for me.
1: Would you want to ground an understanding of solidarity with class struggle?
2: Um, I think solidarity is about much more than just class struggle. I think that, you know, we think about how to be good allies a lot of the time. Um, and that means actually having an awareness of what solidarity means on intersectional issues. So I, I don't think it is just a concept that applies to class struggle, though I think clearly, you know, within the sort of trade union and labour movement, it's it's often um, being embedded in the class struggle. But, you know, I think at this moment in time in the UK, solidarity with, for example, um, uh, trans comrades, uh, non-binary people, um, all manner of different types of marginalised groups is is just as important as the recognition of class politics.
1: On that point, do you think that intersectionality identifies a problem with solidarity in in terms of that how difficult and maybe even impossible it is to achieve, or is it something that can uh, lead to greater possibility of solidarity?
2: I definitely think it can lead to a greater um, prospects for solidarity. I, I think, you know, there's always going to be um, teething issues, if you like, when people are introduced to intersectional issues that maybe for various reasons um, they've been ignorant of or they've never understood or they've never been confronted with. But I think the, the various ways in which you negotiate space Um, within communities to acknowledge that interests don't have to be competing and actually where you can generate space for solidarity means that you are stronger. And I think that that's really part of some of the biggest problems that I think some progressive movements can can make at the minute, that, um, you know, we almost see liberation as a finite um, goal and only certain amounts of groups of people can have it or that, you know, somebody else's liberation comes at a cost to yours. Um, and that that is the the enemy, if you like, of solidarity, and I just don't really think it's true. so I think if if there's a move to sort of suggest that intersectionality is essentially hampers solidarity, I would be quite opposed to that view.
1: I mean, I'm wondering just how how um how contentious that is at the moment, uh, because it seems intersectionality as an intervention is something which kind of materializes about fifteen years ago and has really rocked a lot of assumptions about how solidarity can take place so i'm thinking of some traditional leftist organizations who have really struggled uh, to respond positively to some of these uh, interventions
2: yeah but i mean i think it's a position in a, a kind of why have these organizations struggled to 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 sort of grasp that i would say well maybe there's a bit of a you know problem with the thinking within those organizations and the whole point about saying that we have to take an intersectional approach to traditional concepts might be because the sorts of people who framed thinking about those traditional concepts haven't been very intersectional themselves. So the concepts themselves have become normalized, they've become accepted, but they're actually quite a rarefied notion of what that is. And I think solidarity potentially, if, if I think I understand what you're getting at, could be seen to be that. And I think that's why it's You know, I'm not a philosopher. I've never really been into philosophy because I've always, well, philosophical texts I've always found quite difficult to stay interested in because I've, you know, even as a sort of relatively privileged um, sort of white woman who's not marginalised and whose culture really is um, created from those sort of key texts, I've always just found them a bit dry, a bit stale. And I think that they have failed to capture the experiences and cultural understandings of other groups. So, you know, if if what we're saying now is that a concept like solidarity, there's other groups that are competing for space to say what it means, then I think we don't chuck away solidarity as it's been traditionally conceptualized because these competing definitions and intersectional approaches make it tricky. We perhaps say, oh, maybe as, you know, envisaged initially, it was a limited way of thinking about it, is, would be my kind of thought.
0: We approach the, a lot of these issues from the perspective of critical marketing and critical approaches to consumer research. Of course, the very idea of consumer society nowadays is massively grounded in the notion of individualism, individual pleasure, individual joy, individual consumer choices. That is at least the myth of the consumer in consumer culture. So... Um, with all this ideological backdrop, with all this sort of eradication of the idea of solidarity to the point where we almost have to introduce the idea of solidarity as sort sort of a novel concept, a new way of thinking again. Um, how would you see? Would you see that, for example, the current situation is now opening? new opportunities for thinking about solidarity against these ideas of this very embedded notion of individuality and individualization.
2: Completely so you know traditionally my um, academic area has been industrial relations and as you can imagine solidarity in the face of you know I think the concepts that are used there are more like financialization and and, and regimes of capital accumulation that are based around financialization and, and how these have come to um, impact on organizational decision making not just in organizations but everyday life so I think it's probably sits quite well with the sorts of um, developments that you're talking about in your field and it does atomize people and it does make building stronger responses to the, you know, to the catastrophic effects of labour and financialization of it in general um, difficult. And, you know, if you think about the way in which the economy then becomes structured because of those regimes, you know, the fact that people are on outsourced contracts, the fact that organising in workplaces is more difficult because staff aren't employed in the same way. So, you know, really the kind of the the recruiting ground of trade unions has shifted massively um, and that, that's a big challenge in and of itself and I don't think the union movement because it's often full of very big bureaucratic unions has been very good necessarily at adapting to those changes. With that said emergent unions I think have popped up that, that don't necessarily organize around the workplace but organize around um, life circumstances So in the UK, there is um, a a renters union called ACORN, um, and that understands that, you know, often not exclusively younger workers, but often people from their 30s downwards are sort of trapped, um, particularly in economies like the UK where houses are so expensive, but rents are also disproportionately expensive, um, and take up a massive amount of your monthly income. So, you know, the idea that you can actually save to get a house and get out of renting is just impossible. So uh, unions like ACORN look at that individualization of the workplace, look at how these people are not going to essentially get captured into a union in the workplace, but no, fundamentally no one understand that they need to be organized and have organized around the concept of protecting renters against aggressive uh, landlords. But I think the same is happening in the labour market as well. So a, a trade union like the union that I'm General Secretary of, um, UCU, you know, we have been looking at casualization. And traditionally for a tr- trade union, casualization obviously is an attack on a profession. But sometimes it's not being seen as a real existential threat to that profession. Because I think sometimes people think, well, there's a rite of passage, particularly in a field like academia, And, you know, you go through that rite of passage and you get a permanent job. But what we're finding, obviously, is that doesn't happen and precarity trickles up. So how do you get, I think, to return to our initial question, how do you get someone who is securely employed, you know, is maybe in their 50s, who doesn't understand the academic job market now, to understand that they should care about that 27-year-old who's stuck on fixed-term contract after fixed-term contract? And I think that, you know, there's concepts that I've worked with before, which are about how do we foster solidarities in an era of financialization. And the real challenge of trade unions in doing that, because it hasn't always been necessarily been something they've done. But in my opinion, the opportunities, if you like, to foster those solidarities are everywhere between groups. And you know, we've just we did we just did it in UCU. We ran a ballot, I think Alan started by saying this. And one of the ballots was about pay, but within it, it was about casualisation and it was about gender and ethnicity pay gaps. And we have really draconian trade union laws in the UK, which mean we have to get a really high threshold before we can take action. And as General Secretary, I literally travelled the UK in the two months that that ballot ran. I um, visited over 30 different institutions, gave loads of public talks did online engagement to really remind those more securely employed people who were the bulk of UCU's membership that this was a threat to their occupation, that this was a threat to education, that this was a threat more broadly and that we had to stop being the shock absorbers of this model, this broken model of managing universities that was damaging everybody. And you could really see that when you were asking people to acknowledge that this was so much more than just a pay dispute, and that this was so much more than just academics in ivory towers. That this was about students. That this was about social justice. That this was about education. I think that's how you connect to people. Who, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a fundamentally positive person, and I fundamentally think that people do want to help other people. And the atomizing effects of, you know, the everyday. Look, life, the um, the economic system we live in, can have the opposite effect of making people um, not want to reach out. Because, you know, if you live in a household or if you have a family where grandparents can see that their grandchildren are never going to get the same sorts of things that they did, you can create intergenerational fairness or intergenerational justice.
1: A related question about this idea of the consumer society and the individualistic mindset. One thing I've noticed within trade union membership is that some people proceed with this um, idea of a service expectation. So they they haven't quite grasped that the point of a trade union uh, is to be in solidarity and to participate in the organisation and to make sacrifices where possible. Instead, it's more of an expectation that they can wait and. Uh, be recipient so is is that a a good way of thinking about a problem or a contradiction in trade unionism that it requires kind of an output of people who are used to receiving input
2: yeah i mean you have hit upon um you know a, a sort of an enduring problem i think sometimes within unions that some people see it as a service or they see it as an insurance card for if you know And they ever become the target of a bullying manager. But I think the best way to think about a union is that it's sort of a weapon and um, we can all use it. And whether that's, you know, that we collectively need to push back against management or we collectively need to actually defend our interests in a preemptive way. My feeling personally is, and you know, I, I'm sure there will always be a section of people who join trade unions in a transactional way. And I think, you know, we, we I think you just sort of accept that. Um, but my feeling personally as a general secretary, but as an activist in a union for, you know, over a decade before that is people do join a trade union. you know, they might not think of it as a political act when they do. Um, and I think often people don't think of it as a political act when they do but you know the fact that um, it's been criminalized um, historically and remains so in some circumstances shows that inherently joining an organization that is there to advance the interests of a class group is a political act and I think in that sense for trade unions um, and it's one of the things that since i started as general secretary in august last year of ucu i've been reviewing all of the educational programs that we do because i want to find ways to reach out to people who maybe be are in the union have been in it for years but don't fully understand that it's political that it's campaigning and actually could be really interested in getting more involved and i think there's different ways in doing that so you know um ucu because of the nature of its membership Um, Some of the training that it does um, is is sort of obvious rep training, so it's a quality training, it's um, bargaining training for green issues, but some of it has traditionally been maybe more sort of professional development type training. Um, I'm of the opinion that if we carry on providing that type of training, that it's really good to add on organiser training. Um, I think in the UK in particular, people sometimes in a workplace feel a bit, Odd about going up to one of their colleagues and saying, "Are you in the union? Would you like to join the union?" Almost like you're kind of asking someone to join a cult or something. And um, I think we need to sort of break down those barriers in Britain about how we talk quite openly and are proud about being in the union. But to do that, I think we also need to, and I, I think you is starting to do this. But I think other unions, um, especially you know in different countries around the world, do it really well as well. Is, find other ways to engage people and get them involved um, that isn't the usual kind of branch meeting. And I think this goes back to what I was saying at the very beginning of the podcast about, you know, um, our traditional ways of organising, our traditional ways of thinking about um, solidarity, you know, a little bit heteronormative themselves and a little bit kind of embedded in, in a particular way of thinking in the past, because The committee branch meeting or, you know, the branch uh, general meeting, they're always going to be really important in organising because it's where decisions are going to be made. But they have to be supplemented, I think, with other ways of people joining in and participating and other voices being able to be heard. Um, Because, you know, for various reasons, whether it's caring responsibilities, whether it's, you know, you don't have access to it because of disability reasons or whatever it might be. Um, We need to think of new ways to bring people in and show them um, that unions can be really transformational and that it's not just about a transaction of what will you get if you join the union. And I think ultimately, just to sort of finish this thought, that means making people understand that the power is within them in their workplace to change things. And a national union will always facilitate that. And sometimes the national union might lead that via a national campaign But the point of building confidence is to make branches and activists confident to act on their own and know that their union will back them, not dependent on their union to act for them.
1: I remember uh, Jeremy Gilbert, the culture studies uh, scholar, making a very interesting point that within critical thinking there's a lot of analysis um, and thinking about what it is to be in vertically organised organisations but very little appreciation and understanding of what it is to be in horizontal type of of organizations um, and it's something that's always struck me at trade union meetings is, is how strange and um, and wonderful it is to be in a room full of people discussing their working conditions in a way that's very democratic do you have I, I wonder what you think about that just the strangeness of, of how it is to to kind of appear in these horizontal um Working conditions, and, and even it seems to me within critical theory, there's a big emphasis on the autonomy of the individual. Does solidarity present something really radical in terms of, of, of how we understand ourselves and how we relate to other people?
2: Um, I think so. And I think it possibly can in the sort of horizontal spaces that you um, are talking about that, you know, branch meetings and union meetings um, and any sort of political meeting in that sense. Can encourage um I think what I would say is sometimes though you know you don't always see they are horizontal spaces in that sense, but not every power dynamic within that space is horizontal um you know there will be. Through the nature of, you know, if we if we use um, a UCU branch meeting, for example, so UCU, it, it doesn't just represent academics, it represents professional service staff in universities, technicians, um, librarians, you know, all sorts of people. Within that room, there will be cultural capital and there will be people who are used to standing up and talking and sometimes talk for far too long, but because, you know, uh, they're a professor, no one ever tells them to shut up or whatever. Um, so even within a horizontal space, there will be people who either um sort of through ignorance dominate that space um or you know through other people's perhaps lack of confidence or um experience um you know won't won't speak out. so I think even in horizontal spaces, and I think this is where intersectionality actually does it does come back to it, I think there needs to be a real um appreciation for the people facilitating the discussions, chairing the discussions to act against any of the things I've just described if they start to emerge, because otherwise you could boast that you have this great horizontal space where everybody comes together and has equal access to having their voice heard, but actually you could potentially have quite invisible forces of oppression um, acting as sort of boundaries of what is possible via those spaces.
1: Would you want to say that solidarity is a name that we constantly have to work towards achieving, rather than something that we could take for granted ever exists?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think I I I don't know if I would put it quite in those words, but I think that the idea that I think solidarities can be organic, um, you know, you you so in that way they could just pre-exist and 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 they're there, but I think within most complicated groups and I think occupational groups that you know that's where what we see in trade unions you cannot take organic solidarities uh, for granted and you're going to have to constantly work to foster those solidarities and what I explained about you know the ballot tour that we did with UCU that was you know twofold it was showing that that organic solidarities exist i.e. Pretty much all of us want a progressive, non marketized free education system in the UK, but then how are we going to foster a sense of solidarity amongst groups that maybe don't see that they have it or don't know the realities of the groups who are on the sharp elbows of university business models? So I think I, think I sort of semi-agree with you that you can't take for granted that it exists, but I think organic solidarities do exist, and then it's about how we foster them or make them apparent to people, but yeah. They need to be worked constantly.
0: Now, if I move the conversation a little bit towards the present historical moment that we're dealing with, um, we've seen so many examples uh, of what looks like extreme selfishness and also many new forms of altruism popping about all over the place in terms of the selfishness again speaking more from the perspective of a uh, consumer behavior of course we've seen all these uh, people hoarding toilet paper or hand sanitizer and for example even trying to sell them from their car in the very retail uh, parking spots next to the next to the store for massive profits And also we've seen, of course, new forms of solidarity or altruism where, for example, young people have volunteered to get food for the elderly who are isolating in their apartments. So have you noticed any interesting, you know, these kind of grassroots moments yourself? And uh, do you think there are some opportunities there that might have some longevity for the future as well?
2: I can only really speak... On behalf of the UK um, so apologies for any sort of international um, audience uh, that's getting sick of my UK examples but um, I think in the UK you've seen a few interesting things so obviously we've got the specter of Brexit looming hard and the real resurgence in um, far-right kind of emboldened attitudes that I think you know perhaps we're always there But prior to the EU referendum, just just weren't parroted as much and definitely weren't given quite as much space um, on prime time, telly and in papers. I think we've got to be really careful about the manipulation of something that clearly isn't solidarity, but is almost kind of, you know, the deserving migrant and and, and something that I'm concerned about in the UK at the minute, which is, you know, so the, the National Health Service, which is the sort of public, free at the point of delivery, health service in the UK, the NHS, um, obviously has a, a huge amount of migrant labour in it. The care sector in the UK, huge amount of migrant labour, you know, many, many sectors staffed by migrant labour. In the UK, in the aftermath of Brexit, and the EU referendum, you know, there's been a complete demonisation of migrants. And now we're seeing a lot of migrant and BME healthcare professionals dying on the front line whilst they're treating um, COVID-19 patients. And there's been a real move to, you know, talk about how these people are heroes, um, talk about how um, these are essential workers and we might need to kind of rethink how we conceptualise, you know, who we let in the country in the future. And I think it's in some ways really positive that perhaps people who had, you know, up until recently, not really given the complexity of this a second thought, but at the same time, I think we as a, as, a, as a left movement in the UK have to find a way to broaden this conversation to say, you know, we should be bothered about these people because it's the ethical thing to do, because we don't believe in closed borders um, and, and, and use this crisis to really revisit that conversation and, and not really allow this idea that we tolerate this. So it's a bit of a different, I think, answer to maybe the question that you asked but I think it's a bit more of a pressing concern for me than whether or not we're sort of seeing small acts of solidarity here there, or, or anywhere.
1: One thing that happens in Britain, uh, so, so today is, is a Thursday, and at 8 o'clock this evening, as every other Thursday, uh, people come outside of their houses and clap. And in some cases, some of my neighbours, they do it almost quite aggressively with, with drums and, and pots and pans. Um, and they do so for a minute. But it seems this action and, and generally how to talk about and how to appreciate care workers at the moment is, is really contentious that the Conservative governments are leading with this uh, tagline of support the National Health Service uh, in terms of why people should um, should follow the, the quarantining guidelines. Um, and on the other hand, you have this left who wants to treat the National Health Service as kind of the, the, the major aspect of the British social democratic state or what's left of it. Um, and you have this tussle, I think, with some people saying, well, don't clap, just don't vote for conservatives who are undermining it. But what do you think of this gesture at eight o'clock and, and, and do you find it a kind of contested, ambivalent, um even ambiguous uh a phenomenon like I do, Joe?
2: I'm very conflicted about it. I mean I think um I think it's amazing that people are actually taking the time and the thought to really um, you know in a very kind of obvious and public way show support and appreciation to people who are you know literally being forced to give their lives and um, I don't know what the situation is it, whether it's as bad in other countries as it is in the UK with um, the sort of protective equipment that medical workers are, are using when they're treating patients as a shameful shortage of it that is completely government um, created in the UK. So, you know, higher numbers of he- healthcare workers are dying than need to be because of this. There is also insufficient, and there has been for a while, levels of testing of, of, of medical workers, which mean that you know more people than need to be are getting the virus. So, I do, I have, I do have an internal sort of problem with the government. You know, sort of weaponizing the heroism of these workers who, you know. It's not really their choice to be um, made heroes um, or martyrs of the government when the government isn't providing them with the basic protective equipment that they need to protect themselves from the virus. So, the longer this goes on and the more um, healthcare professionals die from the virus, the more uncomfortable I think the clapping becomes because it almost, not that this is, you know, what fuels people going out and you know like you say banging a pot on a pan or clapping at all but it it almost feels like a clapping whilst these people are dying and I don't know at what point it goes from being appreciative of the sacrifices that people are making to almost you know an act that people do to make themselves feel better or give themselves some sort of ritual in what is a really uncertain and anxiety inducing time, but ultimately is letting people off the hook. Um so I don't really know what I think about it, Alan. It, it I, I think in some ways it's a really lovely gesture and if it makes people who work in the health sector feel good, great. But I'm not sure it's serving that purpose anymore. I don't what do you think?
1: Yeah, I'm I'm just as conflicted about it as you. I, I do go out and do it, uh, but, but with, in a very sort of self conscious way where I'm wondering if, if this is the right thing to be doing at all. I, I just don't know, really. I, one thing that I do find very strange in Britain is just how fetishized the National Health Service is in a way which I think is, is, is really strange. I don't think it exists in that way in other countries.
2: It is strange. And I think, you know, and this is why I I worry that basically, you know, healthcare work has become a bit of um, a political, um, sort of almost jingoistic football. So, just very anecdotally, uh, where I live, um, the woman who lives in the property next to us works in the health sector and um, have a little chat with her every now and again if we sort of cross paths as we're leaving the house. And um, she's pretty much like the only one left in her team that hasn't either gone down with coronavirus or, you know, hasn't been forced to sort of go home and start self-isolating because they've tested positive or someone they live with has or whatever. There's almost a kind of, I, I, I worry that the, like you say, the fetishization of the NHS means that um, people feel they can't criticise an institution because they want to protect it because they don't want to expose it to criticism because we know that you're the Conservative Party that have cut the NHS to the extent where we're so unprepared for a pandemic, Um, you know, if you expose it to further criticism, it's seen as a further reason to marketise it and to bring the private sector in. So I do think even within healthcare, unless you're talking to healthcare unions, who will be quite vocal sometimes about the damaging um, impact of government cuts to the sector, I think it's quite difficult for workers individually to really criticise it. Um, And I think that is a bit of a problem. Um, because, you know, the NHS, what's happening now with COVID, we already knew it. I mean, there was a humanitarian crisis declared in the NHS, I think, two years ago, around about this time of year. Maybe it was more like January. Um, this is what happens when you run a sector like healthcare to capacity all the time. There's no slack in it at all for an emergency.
1: It's worth mentioning also that as it stands, the UK is probably going to have the worst debt rate in Europe which is really shameful when we remember that Italy and Spain were the first hit and very severely hit. So there was plenty of warning signals available to the British government, which they've clearly neglected.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's shameful. And um, I think this is why, as time wears on, the clapping, even if well intended, it's starting to feel dark.
0: Now, uh, speaking of dark things, there's almost now a tension-ridden global negotiation going on, which would be the usual one. So is the economy for the people or are the people for the economy uh, of any particular country? You've written yourself on necrocapitalism, which of course deals with global arms trade and the marketization of basically killing people. But if we look at this from a curious Uh, introspective view on uh, necrocapitalism where we sort of turn the gaze inwards to ourselves where we see that Uh, increasingly, especially in the States, the discourse has become something akin to we're supposed to give our lives to the economy, to make a sacrifice for the economy. For example, the lieutenant governor of Texas said that old people should go out and allow for the opening of the economy and they should basically kill themselves in this fantastically manifesting act of death drive going on. So what, what do you think will come out of this uh, negotiation uh, on a global level? Any thoughts on this?
2: I mean, I think that my hope would be, you know, it would actually give people pause for thought um, about the extent to which people would do what you've just outlined. Um, Again, in the UK, the sheer amount of deaths that are happening in care homes which aren't really being accurately captured and reported, are huge. So this idea that, you know, you're old and you're in a care home, so we'll just let the virus run through your care home like wildfire, um, isn't really being talked about, but I think is really being felt in families. So I I don't know what it's like for the two of you, but, you know, I know of several people now who've, who've lost an elderly relative, Somebody who I know lost both their parents within an hour of each other um, to coronavirus. So I think, you know, the sort of social care systems that protect people in various different countries um, that, you know, often in, in neoliberal e- economic um, situations have been cut or have been privatised. There is a space, but I think the left have to really be far in making it that they need to be reestablished or actually... You know, coronavirus has just sort of acted as a catalyst for all the worst things that we already know exist. Um, And the countries that have have done better, I think, at addressing them are the ones that aren't as far down that road of accepting that this is the only way things can be. I really don't understand the mindset of people who are actually subjecting themselves to this um, and are seeing themselves as some sort of martyr to the economy. And, you know, they'd Rather go out and have someone sneeze coronavirus all over them. If it keeps the economy going, I, I, I just think that's bananas. I have to say, I don't I I don't understand it at all.
1: Joe, in your um, opening comments, you mentioned the embodied nature of solidarity. That to be in a crowd, for instance, at a large demonstration uh, has as I don't think you used the word empowering, but certainly that's my experience of it. But now we're we're looking at a a future for an unknown amount of time where that's going to be very difficult to have people to gather in political causes and instead people are gathering through Zoom and, um, and other media. That's going to be very interesting for establishing solidarity, isn't it?
2: Yeah, completely. Um, but I don't, I don't see it as a barrier. I see it as a challenge. I do, I do think you're right. I think you know, there's, there's nothing like being in a crowd um, and it is empowering. But What I would also say is that, and I think this does sort of come back maybe to intersectionality and how um, marginalised groups have organised, because if there isn't a lot of you actually going and doing a demo isn't very empowering, it can actually feel a bit crap because, you know, you you, you have power in numbers. So I think even though there is a lot of critics of um, social media platforms like Twitter and and stuff like that, I actually think that a lot of groups have found you know their people and have built communities online and particularly through Twitter. and I think when people dismiss it as you know bubbles, what they don't really understand is that you might start with a bubble but you find ways to connect out and then either your bubble gets bigger or you you, you know you get connected into different networks and communities so i think um we are already well placed to say okay well we can't all say let's congregate at x place because we're going to do a march but we can now start to use electronic ways to create bigger communities and as you say um create online meeting platforms um, and educate people so I, I again i don't see it as a barrier in some ways um Notwithstanding the idea that people obviously have children to care for and, and everything else that that goes along with, in some ways, there's all sort of been stuck at home. As long as we have the technology to do it, and I think we have to acknowledge that there is obviously not everybody does, um, in some ways, organizing could be less complicated. But what we need to think about is what leverage we have if we don't do a demo or we don't do a rally or we don't do a march. Like, how are we going to create communities? How are we going to create political pressure for the changes that we want to see? So I think it really invites a moment to think about how we not just do things differently, perhaps for this interim moment in time, but how we come up with ways that are more radical, that bring more people in and that might not replace the exact type of leverage and pressure we were able to build before with previous tactics, but maybe actually produce something new and different and might be better, might not be better. It might just be something we have to do in this time.
1: I'm thinking now of Naomi Klein's uh, shock doctrine, where she identifies a phenomenon that during periods of emergency and disaster that it's very easy to... Pushed through um, a lot of neoliberal reforms, and that there is many examples of this within universities at the moment. I see that almost every curriculum content is going to be moved online. Um, like a lot is happening very fast. Are you concerned that during the, that this is a critical moment where a lot of ground might be lost that might be difficult to recover?
2: Completely, yeah. I mean, I think not just um, as you say with. Um, the economy at large um, but with universities there is a real desire and appetite um, to use you know disaster capitalism to um, accelerate you know marketization measures that they wanted to anyway to slash staff Um, you know there's there's obviously that's happening what I think we have tried to do as a union so we we got some numbers crunched and actually put to government because the thing is you know, they make these models marketize they make universities reliant on fee income to survive. And particularly in the UK, this has meant that their universities are particularly vulnerable to international fee income. Now, universities can try and cut their way through this. But ultimately, the connection that universities have to the local economies that they exist in, to the cities that those um, universities are in, the impact is going to be felt. So, you know, a government, I think, responding to, I, I, I've obviously I've read shock doctrine, but I don't, I don't recall a, a global pandemic that forced economies to basically shut down for, you know, six to eight weeks and potentially have to shut down again in several months' time if there's a second wave of the virus um, being discussed in the book. (laughs) Um, And I think that one of the things that unions have to do, and we've definitely been doing this through UCU, we've said to government, look, if you allow universities to go on as business as usual, if you allow universities to actually engage in disaster capitalism and see this as an opportunity to get rid of staff and to go further down this route, you're going to lose academic capacity, um we've actually calculated you're going to lose 6 billion from the uk economy you're going to lose around 60,000 jobs and these are just conservative estimates so it's not necessarily the argument you know they're going to lose academic capacity so much like the disaster capitalists try and move in and say this is a great opportunity to to you know make even more cash when it comes to something like education and the impact it's going to have on the cities where universities exist We very much rush to fill that space with government and say, and these are the consequences that will come from those decisions if you make them. And in the UK at the minute, whatever you think about this conservative government, and obviously we don't know what's around the corner, they have not done what the University Employers Association have been asking them to do. They've not gone for that quick fix sticking plaster which would usher in the very worst sort of disaster capitalism. That doesn't mean universities, as you say, aren't trying to do it. We we could point to some really bad examples. We as a union are pushing back locally against where they're doing that and pushing nationally to get the sector underwritten in this period. Um, because I think, you know, as I said before, all of the problems that exist with these marketized models have just been completely exposed by coronavirus. And the disaster capitalists, if they get what they want and they're listened to, it, it's not quite like other disaster capitalist, capitalism moments, I don't think, this, personally.
0: As you've identified as well, and as we see around us, there's various forms, new forms of um, care, and also, new, for example... Uh, when one thinks of new applications coming about, where people could be, uh, with the coronavirus, could be identified, and then you could identify the people you've been in contact with, and so on, and try to provide isolation more in a more targeted fashion. And we also see, like you said, organizing through various social media that might might be even in some sense bring about more solidarity, or might be even easier to come about than we usually have seen. Well, that's of course all positive, but then we have the even if speculative flip side. So, could all these technologies and all these forms of uh, interaction, they could also potentially turn against themselves uh, as algorithmically guided as further forms of control in the future? If we now allow these applications to come about and to sort of organize our lives for us, they could be used for other means in the future as well. So, even with the risk of speculation, how do you feel this potential of creating new forms of help that might turn into new forms of
2: control? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's always a fear with that, isn't there? And I think that, you know, like, um, Alan was just saying it in, in universities, the push to get everything online. You know, the fear for us is that universities will then use that as a form of new managerial control um, in the future. And I think... You know, what I would say in terms of workplaces is is this is why you need strong unions so that when shifts to things being online and being negotiated, you put in mechanisms to ensure that they are, you know, interim, that they're negotiated and actually suitable, uh, what will happen with those materials. So I think if we're talking about workplace measures, um, you know, where possible, you'd be wanting to form unions if you're not already in one or join one and be part of those conversations. I think in terms of social organizing, um, I I say this as a really technologically inept person who relies upon her um, friendship group that's full of nerds to actually help me um, select and use um, apps and other forms of um, technology that is secure um, and that doesn't really open up to the sort of more controlling potentials that you've outlined and i think as a left we need to be really really careful and i've been a little bit concerned about the excitement that some people have had for using um certain softwares to and i know they're easy and they facilitate online meetings and maybe it's fine for some things um but i do think we need to think it through but on the left you know we're a really educated innovative um technologically uh, equipped group of people um and i mean like educated, not necessarily formal education, whether that's, you know, you pick up these skills and um, there's loads of softwares out there that I'm sure will get better. Cause I think a bit like Alan was saying, you know, in moments of crisis, Naomi Klein identifies that disaster capitalists can swoop in. But I think in moments of crisis or moments of rapid change, you also see massive amounts of innovation. Um, we've definitely seen that in my union in UCU where people have moved not just to teach rapidly online, but to organize rapidly online, you know, people who were not equipped to deal with those sorts of meetings are now hosting them all the time.
1: One other aspect of Naomi Klein's analysis is that at these moments of disaster capitalism, that the left um, is is typically disorientated. Do you think that the left right now is disorientated?
2: I, I mean, again, I can only really speak for the UK because I've just been so busy with work, I don't really have to get i don't get a head up to look at anything else i don't think the left is right now no in the uk i think as i said nobody was prepared for coronavirus you know whether you're looking at education and health and social care nobody was but the very criticisms of the system that coronavirus has exposed to a wider audience or has accelerated you know the british left have been banging on about for a very long time so You know, as I say, I think I know the the press in the UK and I don't know if this is the same in other countries around the world are desperately trying to um, configure coronavirus as a war and as a battle. And that would obviously clearly like play into the shock doctrine, you know, playbook of how we then have to all rally together to fight this war. Um, But, you know, in, in the UK, we've already lost more people to coronavirus than died during the Blitz. You know, how many more old people are going to die alone and not be buried by any family member in care homes before um, this war metaphor just runs really um, dry on people? So I think if, you know, and the union movement in the UK is is winning lots of gains at this moment in time for workers. So were we prepared? No. Does that mean that we're sort of not um, pushing back in a sort of coordinated way? No, I think I think we're doing all right.
0: Well, thanks very much for your time, Joe. This was very interesting.
2: You are very welcome.
0: Thank you indeed. It was wonderful, Joe. Thank you very much.